happens. Anyway, if you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn to Mark chapter 7. We're continuing our walk through the book of Mark as his account of Jesus' life and ministry on planet Earth. It's, it's an abridged version, kind of from, compared to Matthew and Luke, it's really kind of abridged, and John's is another whole discussion before we've had that. But now we're kind of getting to a turning point, a point where Jesus is beginning to realize it's time to start moving toward Jerusalem. And he, uh, this account starts that kind, of, that kind of turn toward a confrontation, a confrontation with religious leaders. These guys came to Galilee to pick a fight. They came to Galilee to pick a fight with Jesus, and they lost. So let me read this passage to us, starting with verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed what some of the disciples, that some of the disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is unwashed, hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonial, unclean hands. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. Let's pray. Father, we, we see your son attacking man-made traditions, man-made ideas that are in contrast and contrary and oppose your word. It undermines your word. May we see where we are doing the same things and confess them, repent of them, and move forward in your grace, your compassion, your mercy. Help us to see that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three times in this passage you see Jesus tell them, tell them flat out, you're substituting traditions for God's word. And that's why I titled the sermon, Undermining the Word of God. It's kind of nice when Jesus says something three times in a passage, you say, that's probably the point of the passage. So then I can start with that and work from there and, and preach to you a clearer understanding of what Jesus is showing us in this passage. Undermining God's Word is a very serious infraction. God takes it serious as well as Jesus. It has eternal impact. 
if you don't trust and believe God's word. Now, when I use the word tradition this morning, I'm using the word tradition not as we have to have pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, okay? Or we have to open the presents on Christmas Eve. Or we have to do this. We have to put these lights up or whatever. I'm not talking about those traditions. I'm talking about things that if you don't do them, you go to hell. Because that's what the Pharisees had instructed. If you don't do this or you do that, you go to hell. And it was a tradition. It was something they created. And I'm going to explain that a little further. So I want you to understand, and I use the word traditions, I am not attacking your Thanksgiving meal, okay? I'm not attacking your Christmas traditions, okay? Unless, of course, they violate God's law, and then I am. But that's another whole story. So Jesus is confronting these religious leaders who consistently subvert God's commands by their own strict human traditions. Our human nature, us, our human nature even still seeks to replace God's word with our own ideas. We seek to find a way to say we're doing good. We look good. We're acting good. And that's what we do just like these Pharisees. So let's look at how does the human traditions subplant the word of God in any culture. Well, Jesus shows us in three steps here. In the Word of God, Mark records this. Three steps Jesus points to in the undermining of God's commands. First it is that this tradition stuff creeps in. It's very, it's very insidious. I like that word. It's insidious. Point number one, explore the insidiousness of the tradition. Explore the insidiousness. I want you to see this from verses 1 through 5. Let me read it again, and then I'm going to explain it in a little more detail. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, him, they observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. And then Mark gives us kind of a parenthetical explanation of why that was a big deal. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? See, they didn't care about hygiene. Don't think they're washing their hands because they're afraid of germs. They're they're afraid that they're polluted. They're afraid that they're in opposition to God because they didn't wash their hands. And that's the tradition that, that's there, that Mark's showing us here. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're coming down from Jerusalem and they're visiting Jesus. They're in Galilee, so they're going north actually. They're there for maybe, maybe two reasons. Maybe the local Pharisee said, this Jesus guy is getting real popular. And we've seen that over chapter 6. He got real popular. Real popular. He's getting real popular and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't listen to us, and we need some help. That's basically. So we're calling down the high and mighty popes of Jerusalem to come down and talk to Jesus and see what he's doing. The other thing is that they came down just to watch and catch Jesus in a criminal act, they thought, in something that they could accuse him of blasphemy. If you remember all the way back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus confronts these Pharisees locally, and they begin conspiring with the Herodians for seeking a way to destroy Jesus. So that's all the way back in chapter 3. We've moved quite a ways from that, but that is still going on. So that's probably the two reasons why these Pharisees and scribes, they're there. And, they, and I want you to look at the type of measurements they're, having, they're giving Jesus. This is what it takes to be valid to us. 
So it's just incredible. They were, they were using some of this to, and to validate Jesus' ministry, like washing their hands, washing pots, washing kettles, washing bowls, washing dining couches, Please, things they sat on to eat a meal. I mean, they were, they were taking it to the nth degree. So where did all of that come from? Well, we're going to give you a little lesson lesson in Judaism this morning. Judaism or Jewish history and how they got to this. Because it feeds today's Judaism. If you meet a Jew, especially an Orthodox Jew, he is adhering to these very things or trying to. So first of all, it started back during the Babylonian exile, back in about 600 yeah, 600 A.D., A.D., B.C., 600 B.C. So they, the, the children of Israel are captured by the Babylonians. If you remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that's the whole thing. They got captured and carried off. Well, during this time, the Levites and the priests got together and started coming up with some ways to fence off God's law so that it didn't get violated because that was why they were in exile. That's why they were in captivity. They had not obeyed God's law. So they create these oral traditions. They're oral. They're not written down. Matter of fact, these were not written down until 200 AD. We're talking 800 years later before they were actually written anywhere. So they used these oral traditions that were contrary to the law of God, or they eventually became contrary to the law of God. For example, this washing thing. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, the washing only applied to priests who were about to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Not everybody, just the priests. Not all the Levites, just the priests. That's, where, that's what God said, wash, you cleanse things. Things that get contaminated by the blood of a sacrifice, you either break a clay pot or you wash out a metal pot. Those kind of things, you wash the garments. There was a lot of things that you washed to keep yourself clean in terms of the sacrifices and the worship, but not all the time. But they, they were going to protect God's law, so they created this washing thing. So these rules really replaced God's word because we see how it, we'll see as we go how it became something that they thought condemned your soul. Like I said, these were not written down until 2nd century A.D. They were orally passed down, even as Mark writes this, they're not written down, they're just something you're supposed to know. Something that you supposedly got taught at the synagogue that you went to. And now that they're written down, they call it the Talmud. T-A-L-M-U-D. That's what they call the document now that they use, that they wrote down in 200, I mean 2nd century A.D., which is the hundreds. They wrote this down finally, and it's called the Talmud. And some of them believe that the Talmud, Talmud is divinely inspired, like our Bible. And so they believe that all these rules are from God. Some even say that Moses gave us the law, and then God gave us this interpretation of it, which means you're going to do all these traditions. Now, it's kind of an innocent start to this whole thing. I mean, they really were, in all sincerity, because they had violated God's commands deliberately, God put them in exile in Babylon. They thought, we need to protect ourselves from ever having this problem again, so let's create all these rules. But they let the rules become points of condemnation. So it was an innocent start, but it was all oral, it wasn't written down, and it was definitely not inspired 
by God. They presumed they knew better than God when they finally made these things laws in their mind. Okay, so that's the Jewish history lesson. That's where all this comes from. That's parts over. Go to the verse, look at verse 5 again. Look at this question that they're asking Jesus. They're claiming that the disciples are unrighteous. They're, uh, they're an abomination to God because they didn't wash their hands before they ate bread. I mean, that's a crazy thing to me. It's not an innocent question, though. They're not just, just generally wanting to know what, what's your disciples thinking. They're really accusing. They're really condescending because they're thinking that your disciples and you, uh, the, their teacher, their leader, you're all an abomination to God. You're all going to hell because you didn't wash your hands. I mean, it might work with your kids to get them to finally wash their hands, but probably not. Probably not a good thing to say. They bought this lie. They bought this lie. This lie that says it's the stuff on the outside that makes you right with God, not the stuff on the inside. The point of our memory verse that we'll get to next week in, in the sermon. They bought the lie that sin comes from without and not from within. They are accusing them of sin that really wasn't sin, which is a sin in my book. They're holding guilty these men for a man-made rule, which isn't God's commands. And it's very insidious, a very insidious invasion to the truth of God. These self-righteous human ideas, they always, they always undermine God's law. No matter where you start with them, they'll always eventually wind up undermining God's law. I mean, think of the first sin, the very first sin. You remember that? Nice, beautiful garden, all the trees you could eat, every fruit possible in the world. God gives them one rule. Do not eat of this tree, this one tree. Don't eat of it. Satan confronts them. So Satan, he kind of adds to the whole God's law. Did, did God say you couldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? He's implying that God's ruthless. God's mean. He's not letting you eat any fruit. He starts it. And then Eve adds to it. Well, we're not even, we, we can eat of anything but that tree, and, and, and we can't even touch that. So now she's adding to God's law, because God didn't say that. Remember what God said? Don't eat. Say anything about touching it. But Satan eventually convinced her to pick the fruit. And I think once she touched it and was convinced that she wasn't going to die because God said don't touch it, she had added, she went ahead and ate it because she thought she was safe. Unbiblical rules can lead to sin against God's word. It will every time. The first one started and it's been going on since. I want you to listen to Jesus as he confronts these Pharisees an another time about their fake sin. Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. I mean, Jesus is really giving it to him. If you want to read more about the Pharisees and, and scribes' conflict with Jesus, read Matthew 23. Chapter 23, he says, Woe! Not like a horse woe, like terrible woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, painted tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Wow. He didn't hold back. I tell you, read that chapter, you'll, you'll see Jesus take them on. So what kind of things do we in our church, you know, what, what kind of things do we set up as traditions? Neckties is one of them. I didn't plan that with my microphone. Neckties, you know, wearing, wearing neckties, wearing, wearing dresses, pews versus chairs, style of music. We need an organ. Those are some of the traditions. You know, I've had people tell me that they don't come to church because they have to, would have to wear a tie. Now, I like wearing ties. I like ties. And, and so I don't wear it because I have to. I wear it because I want to. All right? But we don't have to wear a tie. We do need to wear clothes, but we don't have to wear a tie. We don't have to wear dresses. And as most of I can see out here, not many of you are wearing a tie, so you bought, you've got the right idea. You don't have to. The point is, is we've created all kinds of traditions. We've created all kinds of things that, that people think are necessary to be a Christian or to come to church. You know, they may look good, but they're wrong if we set them up and enforce them like commands. Many things have been and still are points to conflicts and condemnations. Um, another example is don't drink alcohol. You can't be a Christian if you drink alcohol. Well, that's not true. The Bible never says that. It says don't get drunk. And if you can't handle your alcohol, don't, get, don't drink any. But it does not say don't drink and it does not condemn you for drinking alcohol. When we call something a sin, which is not a sin, that is a sin. And we confuse so many people in the world with our traditions and our ideas. I was told as a kid that the reason Baptists don't drink alcohol or go dancing is because John the Baptist lost his head over such a thing. That's what I was told as an honest answer. I, it's funny. But many a lost soul have left church buildings because of unbiblical rules. Human-made sins. We've, we've created them. And we've enforced them like they're sins. And they left. They felt awkward. They felt uncomfortable. They even maybe felt condemned because they left. And we lose credibility when we try to enforce these things. When we try to enforce unbiblical edicts on people. And God to them is distorted. So what have we set up as our, our necessities for righteousness? We, we, we've set up traditions. That, what are our sacred no-nos, I call them? Sacred cows, sacred no-nos. Do we have certain things that we deem are musts for acceptance in our church? I hope not. What I would ask us to do, let's seek the Bible on everything. Everything. I want to use biblical guidance on all aspects of our life and ministry at this church. I want it to be where our go-to is first go to the Bible. Now the Bible's silent on a lot of things like pews versus chairs or styles of music and those we can apply spiritual principles to and talk about. But if you've got a question about anything around here, why we do something or why we don't do something, ask me. I'll try to give you the best biblical answer I can find because I'm trying to do everything based on what God's Word says. But traditions that these traditions crept into the Jewish religion. They were very insidious, and they, oh, it took them years to become laws and become a point of condemnation. 
But what it did is it vacated all of their genuine worship, all of their devotion to God. The point number two, I want us to recognize the empty devotion in these traditions. Verses six through eight. Here's Jesus' answer. They ask about washing hands. Here's Jesus' answer to that. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He didn't even talk about washing hands, did he? He saw right through it. They're only asking this silly question about hand washing so they can accuse us of not being holy, of not being righteous, and of not being saved if we want to go that far. Jesus calls out their hypocrisy using this this prophecy from Isaiah 29, 13. God pronounced this on the Israelites about 700 B.C. Now it returns in another generation for another reason. I mean, this is the, this, this a prophecy applied back then, and it applies now. That back then, they were deliberately disobeying all of God's laws. They were disobeying the Bible, worshiping other gods. Now, <laughs> now they are obeying their own laws, and they call them God's laws. This, the pendulum swung all the way in the other direction. Jesus told them, frankly, that they were in violation of God's commands by their superstitions and their customs. He's making it very clear. Their own ideas invalidated God's commands. It emptied out their worship. Jesus calls a spade a spade here. And look at, what he, look at this passage he quotes from Isaiah. They honor with, honoring with lips. They're saying good things, but they're not good if your life doesn't back them up. They're just words. It's lip service before God. That's what they were doing. They were giving God lip service. We're all guilty of this, okay? So I'm not going to sit up here and say, I've never done this. I mean, we're all guilty coming to church and we're just not in the mood for it. I understand that. God understands that. But we still need to confess it and own it and work very hard at not giving lip service to God. Their heart is far from me. Their true convictions, their true desires, their, their true motives, their true attitudes were very distant from what God wanted from what God desires, from what God requires. They were a long way off from God. Sometimes we wander that way as well. They worship me in vain. You know, the word vain means empty, worthless. It means useless, ineffective. So all of those words applied to worship, to service, to devotion for God's blessings. They, they're just empty. Everything they're doing is worthless. And then they're teaching as doctrines human commands. They're they're setting their own ideas and wants and pleasures over what God commanded. We shouldn't do that. That's undermining God's word. God says there is no devotion to their words or their actions. He is not being recognized as God Almighty. It's the same problem they had in Isaiah. They worshiped other gods. They were not recognizing that he is God Almighty. They didn't. They did their own thing, thinking and declaring that it was worshiping God. But it wasn't. They were a long way off. They had man-made religion, 
And man-made religion will always fall short of the glory of God. It will always fall short of true worship in spirit and in truth. You know, flattery is such a form of empty devotion. If you've ever been flattered by someone, you know what it feels like and looks like. Promises, unkept. You make a promise and don't keep it, that's empty devotion. That's empty devotion. Commitments that are not met, that's empty devotion. Any commitments that are not you made. So what about our worship? What about our worship is just lip service or, or not really from our hearts? How do we know if our worship is from our hearts? How do we really know? Well, I'm going to tell you how. I'm glad you asked. Here's how. Obedience. Obedience. I mean, God's after obedience in Isaiah. Jesus is after obedience right here. Obedience. Obedience to God is our best form of worship. The best worship we can do for God is to obey him. Two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a good starting point. John 14, 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you worship me, you'll keep my commands. You can put it all in there. It's all, synony- it's all synonyms. You can semantically substitute those words. So why is obedience how we worship God? I'm glad you asked. When we gather for formal worship, obedience gives substance to our devotion. We come here and we sing songs like, come let us worship the king. Did you worship the king this week? Or are you just now getting there? You know, those kind, of, those kind of things are backed up by our obedience. During the week, if we're doing the right things, the things that Jesus says are important, like compassion and mercy and grace and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, I can write them off again for you. If, he, if we're doing those things during the week, when we come to worship, we're, we're worshiping someone we've been obeying all week. And that's a good thing. And when you sit down with your private worship, daily or every other day or whenever you do it, obedience gives substance to that. Because most of the time if I sit down and I've not been obeying, my quiet time is filled mostly with a lot of confession and remorse, not a lot of worship. John 4, 24, Jesus is talking to the woman of the well. And she's talking about worship on this mountain and that mountain. And finally, Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him will worship in spirit and truth. Worship is always a spiritual experience backed up by truth expressed in our lives. It's not just a physical expression of waving our hands. It's a spiritual expression in our heart. And that comes from obedience. Our hearts must be in compliance with God's ways to be on the same spiritual plane with him when we come to worship. So it's not empty. When we come to God with just our words or just our rituals or just our traditions, we disobey God and our worship is empty. Our worship is empty. I mean, you could call having the songs we've had and how the order, you could call that a tradition. Yeah, it's an order. The Bible doesn't give a clear order of worship, so we, we, we mess with that. We, we move it around sometimes. But you come with obedience in your heart, it'll mean something. Obedience is truth lived out, which feeds true spiritual worship. You know how I know that it feeds true spiritual worship? Because God says so. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Listen to this. Therefore... I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Go home and memorize that passage because that, that draws us right back to obedience and worship in the same verse. I think I've said enough about that. Obedience is truth lived out which feeds our spiritual worship. Their worship was empty, very empty. And it was from human traditions that had snuck into their laws and snuck into their lives and condemned them. And those kind of things just makes life hard and it damages people. It makes it miserable. Realize the damage from traditions. Point number three, realizing the damage that comes from some of these traditions. <clears throat> Jesus takes this opportunity to show them one more tradition they're using that's damaging people's lives. Starting verse 9. He also, <laughs> Jesus is using this, they picked the fight, but he's going to win. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's commands in order to set up your traditions. For Moses said, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefits you have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Right there in verse 13 is the third time he says, you nullify God's word, you undermine God's word. Jesus took this opportunity, and he points this out to them. It's another example, another infraction. They're invalidating God's word with a tradition that is very, 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 very self-serving. This tradition is in, is in the Talmud. It's still there, even to this day. And it's very self-serving. Jesus starts out by reciting what they're supposed to do. Two commands about taking care of their parents, the child-parent relationship. God made it very clear how parents are supposed to be treated by their children. Okay? That's another whole sermon too. But they didn't like that. They didn't like that and they wanted to be able to circumvent that command. So they set up an oral tradition. An oral tradition. It's not written down yet when Mark writes this. It is now, but it wasn't written down then. And it allows a person to withhold their wealth from benefiting others, especially parents. So you could be obligated by God's law that if your parents are struggling financially, you're supposed to help them. But if you declare Corbin over your resources, you don't have to do anything because you devoted it to God, except that you can keep using it as long as you want. You can keep using it for your own personal stuff because you haven't given it to God yet. It's a Hebrew word, Corbin. It's an oath or vow used to pronounce over your stuff which obligates it to God only. However, you still get to use it. I, I'm, I'm not making this up. I mean, this is what's there. Offerings devoted to God are a good thing. Don't ever think that. Neglecting parental needs is a bad thing. They could still use it for their own purposes. And even this is even the more oxymoronic part. Even when the parental crisis has passed, they could lift the Corbin vow. They could just disregard it and use it for whatever they wanted after that. 
I'm telling you, it was, it was so crazy. Nothing about this rule, this tradition is helpful. Nothing about this tr- tradition is holy. Okay, it's got no help for anybody. It damaged relationships. It contaminates souls with selfishness. That's all this tradition did. Oaths that violate, oaths that violate God's laws, his words, are never valid or enforceable in God's eyes. Some of you might be thinking of the story in Judges where this guy won a victory and he pledged a vow to offer to God the first thing that came out of his house when he got back from the victory. What was the first thing that came out of his house? His daughter. He sacrificed her. God said, that's not right. He would have said that right then. It was, not a, it was not a good vow. It wasn't one that God would hold him to. We don't make vows frivolously. Oaths that violate God's law are never valid or enforceable. It seems odd to us that people who call themselves God's people in, this, in the Bible, the Jews, find a way to directly violate God's law, to circumvent it. They created their own loophole. I mean, I, I like finding loopholes sometimes in the rules, especially when in the military we could find all kinds of loopholes in the rules. But they wrote a loophole for themselves. They created this thing. Well, you know why? I'm glad you asked that. They've been, they've been duped. They've been duped by the adversary that adherence and efforts to anything they think is right is holy, is good. And that comes straight from hell. That comes straight from the devil's mouth. He started with Eve and Adam. They've been duped that rightful appearances, righteous appearances are right and make you good in God's eyes. I mean, this was a designed loophole to maintain a selfish control of their wealth. And it nullified God's laws. It was against the compassion and the mercy of God God didn't give that command of honoring your father and mother to burden you, but to make you a blessing to your parents. It was against his compassion. Greed, self-preservation, hasty vows all lead to nullifying the the commands of God, which damages others. I pray that we won't be so blind. Give you an example. Buying an 85-inch flat screen TV, but not giving your kid a birthday present. That's Corbin. That's wrong. You know, or, or you buy a brand new boat, but you won't give any money or any help at all to a homeless shelter. I mean, those are the, the kind of things we do all the time. We talk ourselves, we rationalize. That's what they were doing. This tradition shows that the Pharisees would tie up heavy burdens and put them on the people's shoulders, and they wouldn't do anything to make it right. Flip over to Matthew 23. We're going to read the first seven verses of Matthew chapter 23. I want you to hear what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes about such things. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do what they tell you, whatever they tell you, and observe it, but don't do what they do. Because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. 
They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces to be called rabbi by the people. That's all they cared about themselves, their own edification. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. You'd never sin against God in a vacuum. Whatever sins you're committing, they're hurting others. You just don't know it, maybe, or it hasn't yet. But if you continue, it will. We don't sin in a vacuum. Your actions always impact others, even if you don't see it. So what oaths, what vows, what promises are we really supposed to keep? How can we police our own vows to make sure we're not promising something we shouldn't promise? Well, this is how. Vows to God never hurts others. Vows to God never hurts others in any way, shape, or form. We're never held to vows that endanger or violate God's laws. Jesus says, be very careful when you're promising something. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Another way of damage that we do is we we do it by claiming something right that's really wrong according to God. And there's a lot of that going on. In God's eyes, there's a lot of things that are wrong, and we're saying as a society, they're right. Accepting evil as good or or rationalizing evil to be good. Let me give you an example. Abortion. Abortion. I get in discussions on some social media platforms every once in a while with people, and they just don't believe that life begins at conception. But they can't tell me where it begins. But it's murder. It is murder. And claiming it to be a right, claiming it is I as a woman have a right to abort my child, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it holy. It doesn't make it helpful. Claiming it as a health care option doesn't make it right. This is my body, yada, yada. It damages women. I know that for a fact. It damages women. Even if they don't know. I mean, I've seen women who didn't even know they were pregnant had a miscarriage. It hurts. Well, add on top of that, you did it, and it just gets even worse. It's wrong, no matter what the world says. Let's talk about another example. Sexual behavior of any kind that's outside of God's boundaries. God's words boundaries, okay? We, we have to be careful with that. Sometimes we set our own boundaries and, and we do some of this tradition thing. We're trying to keep people from violating it, but we need to make sure we're very clear. Sexual behavior of any kind outside God's boundaries is wrong in God's eyes. Still. It's not outdated. It's not misinterpreted. It's just truth. Truth of God. So civil rights, human rights, even constitutional rights... Don't make things right if they're wrong in God's word. They never do. So people trying to get a constitutional right to an abortion is still wrong. Even if they do make a law and let them do it, it's still wrong. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. His word is for our good. When we interpret this book as something that that takes our fun away, we're so off base. It takes our sin away. It doesn't take our fun away. His word is for our good, always. And the untold damage to souls, to families, to society, to planet Earth, 
that we've done because of we've said something is good, but it's really not, is enormous. We need to change our attitude. We need to obey. Go back to what I said about worship. Worship starts at obedience. Let me, let me wrap this up this morning. I told Angie last night, I thought this could have been three sermons, but I, I'm, I'm compacting it a little bit. But human subversion of God's commands is always wrong. Undermining his word is always wrong. And even when it insidiously shows up, like it did in the Jewish Talmud, it's, it's going to be full of empty devotion. It's going to be full of and cause immense damage. It's going to happen. When it undermines God's holy word, it'll cause damage every time. So beware. But this morning, I've got great news. Great news, good news of great joy that will be to all people. For unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. See, the good news is, is that if you're guilty of undermining God's word, if you're guilty of carrying out something that's disobedient to God in some way, you can be forgiven. Grace. Oh, grace is so good to us. Jesus came as a baby and grew up to pay for our ignoring or contradicting God's commands. That's why he came. He came for that. We're, we ignore, we contradict God's holiness, but God, Christ's cross covers our undermining of God's word. Our complete disregard for God for all those years, the cross covers it. See, Jesus does the opposite of what these Pharisees or even churches do today. He showed them their sin and offered them a way to be forgiven. He showed them their sin. You're undermining God's commands, but he offered them forgiveness. If you believe in Jesus Christ, trust him, you can be forgiven. Faith in him covers the damage that we've done. may not repair it all, but it covers it. It fills the emptiness of our lives and gives us a new chance to live rightly. That's the glorious news of Jesus Christ. That's what we have the season for, is to celebrate the birth of our Savior. So we can repent of our selfish ways. We can repent of our acts of Corbin, our undermining of God's commands in our own minds and our own lives. We can accept Jesus, trust him. His grace will take away your sins. Forgiveness will be real. You can live a full life. That's joyful because you're living according to God's rules, not your own. And you can have a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, it is glorious for us to see in your word how you have never meant for us to be burdened by it. You've never meant for us to become something we just could not do or could not find help doing. You meant it for our good. You long to make us holy. You long to make us righteous. You long to bring us into alignment with your son. Father, we praise you that it is your will to use your word and the Holy Spirit to make us like your son. Help us to accept that this morning. Help us to see the things in our own hearts that we have used to undermine your, your word. To confess it, to own it, to repent it, to change it to feed our worship with obedience to you. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the ways you can help yourself is to only trust him. Only trust him, and he'll help you get through.
He'll help you live out his commands. Let's stand and sing.